0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. (laughs) My guest is Wallace Shawn. He's a character actor, one of my favorite character actors, probably one of your favorite character actors. On screen, he has over 180 credits. He was in Clueless, The Princess Bride, he's had regular roles on Gossip Girl and Crossing Jordan. You might also know him as the voice of the T-Rex on Toy Story.
0: Hey, who moved my doodle pad way over here? (laughs) How you doing, Rex? Were you scared? Tell me honestly. I was close to being scared that time. Oh, I'm going for fearsome here, but I just don't feel it. I think I'm just coming off as annoying.
1: He's also an Obie Award-winning playwright and the author of several books. His most recent is called Night Thoughts. It's a collection of essays touching on topics like politics, morality, and privilege. Wallace is here with me now. Wallace, Sean, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Is this really what you think about at night?
0: Well, obviously, I'm a regular, in some ways, regular bourgeois person. And I think about uh, the errands that I haven't completed. And I think about the emails I haven't returned. But I suppose I do think about the things that are in my book uh, quite a bit. They do intrude.
1: I was thinking about talking to you and I did and I literally only realized the irony of that this moment. Like last night I was it, my 3-year-old came into my bedroom and woke me up just as I was about to fall asleep and I didn't fall asleep for another 45 minutes and most of that time I was thinking about
0: <laughs> I was thinking about the fact that today I was going to be talking to you. Well, this is very flattering and I'm deeply touched. I think
1: that I rarely think about big questions at night. I think about little anxieties much more than I think about big anxieties. I mean, as we record this yesterday, the president did some saber rattling um, with North Korea who are apparently now a nuclear power. And I didn't think about that at all. I was mostly thinking about whether I was going to embarrass myself today in some way. So I'm impressed that you're able to think about anything that actually matters, you know, when you're in that quiet thinking space. I'm just consumed by my personal anxieties in those times.
0: Well, this is our life as as, uh, conscious human beings, that we uh, have a self that is, uh, you know, uh, preoccupied with uh, our own bodies and what may happen to them. And what's going to happen, you know, in the next 24 hours, but at the same time, you know, we do have an awareness that there are other people out there and that uh, there's a world out there. I think that we may have a greater awareness of it than uh, people in the 18th century. You know, we're hooked into the whole planet and that's uh, something we can't fix we are hooked into it. I mean, we can't uh, change that. Do you see it as something that needs fixing? Well, I just mean that it it uh, in terms of uh, leading a tranquil life, even in some ways being uh, happy or cheerful, it's uh, obviously difficult or, or impossible if you're aware of of uh, things that are happening on the other side of the world because they're uh, so violent and bloody and sickening, and people are in agony. So I think probably if you were uh, a farmer in the Middle Ages, you know, you didn't worry about uh, what was happening in Syria. I mean, you worried about what was happening on your farm, and there might have been a lot of agony going on there. And maybe uh, there were neurotic people like ourselves, even in the Middle Ages, and they worried about the small details of their lives, I suppose. You got a Fulbright when
1: you were uh, a very young man to, to, I think, teach in India, before India was as developed as it is today. Why did you go and do that, and what did you think you were going to experience when you agreed to do that?
0: Well, at that time, I was about 21, and I uh, felt that I might pursue a life as a, uh, perhaps some kind of international civil servant. Maybe I would work at the UN, I thought. In any case, perhaps I would help human beings become less miserable.
1: Did you go because you imagined yourself in a life of um, like direct service, or did you imagine yourself in a life as a guy who hangs out in Geneva a lot and speaks? French, the international language, with other people who speak French, the international
0: language, you know what I mean? I do. I, I don't think it was clear in my mind. I think, I mean, because sometimes they even thought, hey, I'll run for office. I'll be a politician. And sometimes I thought, well, maybe I'll be an economist and I'll get an advanced degree. I actually was never smart enough to be an economist, but I entertained the thought. I think probably I pictured myself speaking French in Geneva if I had to pick an image. I I think I did.
1: So how did your experience of going to India compare with what you you imagined you were going to get out of it as a 21-year-old?
0: Well... I was quite a miserable person at that time when I got on the airplane to India. What kind of miseries? Psychological, personal. I had no expectation that I would have any happiness in my life. I thought I would just be miserable but maybe helpful. And uh, I started feeling very good when I was in India. I liked what I was experiencing almost indescribably much. I was so happy there. I felt very, very comfortable with the people that I met. And the way that an awful lot of people lived seemed, uh, well, frankly, incredibly enviable to me. And uh, I sort of you know, dressed in a white kurta pajama. And I ate with my hands and I thought, wow, I've really never experienced happiness like this. It's great here. And yes, every now and then I would notice that a lot of people were suffering. They were sick. They had unbelievable problems. But the idea that I'd previously had was that maybe with my help, India could become like the United States. And when I was there, I fairly quickly, after a few weeks, began to think, that's not the way it should go. You know, I I don't really want to uh, dream of an India that would become just like the United States. And I weirdly started to think about the problems that we had back at home, which in my mind had a, well, it was, there was something wrong with the way we thought and felt, and there was something wrong in the human soul of the Americans, and I gave myself permission to change my life plan, really. Uh, I, I... previously had thought it was immoral to be an artist of any kind, to use that sort of stupid word, artist. And in India, I sort of decided, you know, maybe that could be helpful in its own way. Maybe the people at home need help. Maybe if I became some kind of a writer, I could pitch in in that area. Had you
1: previously thought that art was, whatever, an act of self-indulgence or
0: something like that? Uh, Yes, and I still think that, and I'm not sure that I was on the right track when I decided that I really ought to give myself permission to be a writer. But yes, up until the age of 16 or so, I'd always assumed that I would be some kind of artistic person and maybe a writer. But then for several years, I turned against the aesthetic, the romantic, that type of thing. So somehow India drove me back to being the way I was when I was, uh, say, 15. And I'm still like that, but I'm still wondering, you know, I know I've had a lot of fun doing artistic things. Uh, if you can call them that, it's a shorthand. Let's just say it's been fun to write and put on plays and do things like that. But Wallace, uh,
1: I'm going to give you full permission to use the word artist through the rest of yeah. <laughs> the conversation and not feel bad about
0: it. Well, I think it's a pretentious word that doesn't really mean anything. That assumes that, you know, a painter has the same Goals and feelings as a writer and as a, as a composer. I mean, it's, it's a little bit, uh, it's not my favorite word, but thank you for letting me use it because it does, it, it it can make a person less long winded.
1: We'll have more with actor and writer Wallace Sean after a quick break. He'll tell me about how the movie biz has changed since he started acting 40 some years ago. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. <laughs> Support for this podcast and the following message come from Babbel. Have you always wanted to speak a new language? Whether it's for travel, work, or brain training, Babbel's 10 to 15 minute lessons will get you speaking confidently in your new language. Choose from Spanish, French, and more. You'll learn through real life dialogues, speak. You'll learn through real life dialogues, speech recognition, and interactive trainers. And Babbel's spaced repetition method actually makes you remember what you've learned. Download the app or go to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com to try Babbel for free. Let's play some games, everybody. (laughs) I'm Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another. Are you looking for the answer to life's funnier questions? Zamboni? That is correct.
0: Every week we blend comedy plus a special celebrity interview. Jim Gaffigan.
1: I've always done acting, I just have never gotten roles. (laughs) Listen
0: and tell your friends. Well, Alexis, we got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Season one, done. It's over. Season two, coming at you hot. Three years after. (laughs) Three and a half. Season one. Technically, almost four years. All right. And now, listen, here at Can I Pet Your Dog, the Smash It podcast, our seasons run for three and a half years. (laughs) And then in season two, we come at you with new, hot co-hosts. Named you. Hi, I'm Alexis. <laughs> and we also the uh, field trip, Dog tech. Yeah. Dog news. Dog news. Celebrity guests. Oh, big shots. Will not let them talk about their resume. Nope. Only yeah, the dogs. Only the dogs. I mean, if ever you were going to get into Can I Pet Your Dog. Now's the time. Get in here. Every Tuesday. At MaximumFun.org.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne, you're listening to Bullseye. My guest is the actor, playwright, and author Wallace Shawn. He's back as the lovable
0: Rex in Toy Story 4 out later this month.
1: Do you think of yourself as an actor?
0: Not really. I mean, I, I mean life tends to be a bit foreshortened in one's memory. So really the earlier years seem longer. And the later years seem shorter. So to me, I was a writer from an early age, and it grew naturally out of my life, and I still think of myself as a writer. And then I I sort of think, oh, well, then there were these very quick years that came later in which I, I took on another thing that... Weirdly, somebody offered me of being an actor, and I've, I've done a bit of that recently. I mean, I know that I was much more successful, strangely, as an actor than as a writer. So, I realize that most people who meet me, if they know me at all, they, they think, gosh, I'm meeting that funny little guy who's an actor. And then I say, no, no, you don't understand. I'm a very serious writer who you should take very seriously. And they sort of look at me and think, oh, I see. Well, that funny guy thinks that he's also a writer and that I should take him seriously. How bizarre.
1: Are you the kind of person who is comfortable not being intentionally judgmental of your own work, um, or are you someone who sees your own work
0: in terms of its flaws? You know, it's embarrassing to uh, say it, but because of the way I grew up, knowing writers who were well-known and respected, I may have had an exaggerated idea of the normal amount of respect that one could um, acquire. I mean, (laughs) I may have had a a false idea of how much a writer might expect to be respected or liked. And so obviously there are many people who would think I've received too much uh, admiration and respect for my plays. Uh, and because some people think they're worthless. And I've always felt I've received an inadequate amount of admiration and respect. And so it's been up to me to be on the side of my work. Uh, In other words, it's been uh, neglected or criticized a lot. I felt. So, I have to like it. I'm one of the people who has to promote it somehow to myself. So, this is in the background of the fact that, uh, quite honestly, I've tended to have a higher opinion of my own work than other people have had. Uh, And I've tended to enjoy my own work. Uh, Horrible to admit it. Now, I don't let my work be seen by anybody until I've spent many years trying to make it as good as I can make it. So obviously, in the process of writing, there's a lot of self-criticism and destruction of pages that seemed okay yesterday, but upon second thought, you sort of think they don't make the grade. So the kind of nastiness toward my own work, that goes on in private. But by the time something of mine has been performed or published, I tend to enjoy it. Of course, there are days, I think, for any writer when he looks at his own work and is is horrified or finds it incredibly boring or unbearable. But most of the time, I don't.
1: Let's listen to you, Wally, in uh, The Princess Bride from 1987. You're the bad guy, this guy, or one of the bad guys, this guy named Vizini who kidnaps the princess, whose name is Buttercup. So in this scene, Buttercup's boyfriend or beloved, uh, Wesley, comes to save her from you. And they get engaged in this Conversation before uh, Vizzini challenges him to uh, a battle of wits.
0: If you wish you're dead, by all means, keep moving forward. Let me explain. There's nothing to explain. You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. Perhaps an arrangement can be reached? There will be no arrangement, and you're killing her. Well, if there can be no arrangement, then we are at an impasse. I'm afraid so. I can't compete with you physically, and you're no match for my brains. You're that smart? Let me put it this way. Have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yes. Morons. Really? In that case, I challenge you to a battle of wits. For the princess? To the death? I accept.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you do a really great job. Gosh,
0: well, <laughs> you're kind. Thank you.
1: I, I watched that movie at my uh, cabin uh, maybe a month and a half ago, and I hadn't seen it since I was, you know, 23 years old or something like that, although I watched it a million times uh, as a kid. And I I was worried that I wouldn't like it as an adult because, you know, I was worried I would see the seams or whatever. And I was really happy that I loved it as much as a 37-year-old dad as I had loved it as a... Or almost as much, probably, but pretty close, as I had loved it as a, you know, 11-year-old browsing the shelves at Blockbuster Video. Um, But it must be an odd thing to have touched people's lives so deeply in this. I mean, you know, another one of the most important uh, roles you've had in your career as an actor was in Clueless, you know, another really wonderful, very down-the-middle uh, mainstream entertainment. It must be odd to have touched people's lives so deeply with something that is so incidental to the art that is
0: closest to your heart. Well, I don't know if Clueless is is down the middle. I mean, it's Jane Austen. It has some uh, subtle thoughts in there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I live in a somewhat different world from the world that a lot of people who like movies uh, live in. I mean, how else to put it? I mean, I films are different today. American films are very different today. But I don't go to see the big blockbusters that make millions of dollars, billions. You know, I go to concerts and listen to chamber music. I don't do the same things that a lot of people do. It's not my world, really. And yet, in a certain sense, I I am one of the creators of that world. I've been in a lot of movies, and uh, they are important to a lot of people. And it it is uh, strange to me. I... Have tried to not do movies that uh, I would personally despise or think are making the world a worse place. I've tried, if I am able to discern that something is sickening, I don't do it. Uh, Sometimes I've deceived myself out of greed, but I've tried not to do horrible things, but it's absolutely true that for my own entertainment or for my own pleasure, I really don't tend to go to those big movies. Uh, I do other things completely. Do you
1: enjoy being funny?
0: Obviously. I mean, I don't know what the word funny means, but I... Even when I haven't wanted to be funny since I was a boy, people have said, oh, he's funny. But I don't even, you know, it's an indefinable word, really. But I don't, to me, talking and being funny are sort of the same thing, almost. Thinking and being funny are almost the same thing.
1: And I feel like when I'm watching you, especially as a performer, one of the things that's special about your work is that you always bring a sense of the kind of joy of discovery of the language and maybe of the truth that's in it. You know, it's like a twinkle in the eye quality that a lot of people don't don't have or at least can't convey on screen. And it's a really it's a really special joyful thing. There's a certain joie de vivre as a performer that you bring to everything you do that i know brings me a
0: lot of happiness well that's a lovely thing to say quite incredible i mean i i of course actually love performing so acting for me is is uh, very pleasing i mean i i thought you know i would spend my life at a desk and it turns out i've had opportunities to do all these different crazy things and to explore different parts of myself, which is what an actor does, you may see the fact that I'm just feeling good about that activity. I mean, I feel like you're one of the
1: first artists that I've interviewed in my, you know, 18 years of doing this who admits to enjoying their work. Um, I mean... (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's a really that's a really lovely thing. And you know, even in um, even in writing about the immensity of human suffering in Night Thoughts, there is a feeling that you I felt reading your writing that there that you appreciated the beauty of giving these thoughts full consideration. That engaging with them in a in a full way, even though they're brutal in some cases, is in itself, uh, you know. I mean, I know that we that you stipulated it's dumb, but that it's like art with like a capital A art, and that's an okay and good thing to try and do.
0: Well, for me, writing is very pleasurable. Obviously, it's not pleasurable to not feel that you are accomplishing what you would like to accomplish, and it's frustrating and sort of awful to feel that you are empty and are just a hollow person, which any writer probably feels fairly often. But on a good day, writing for me is a very pleasurable activity, and playing with Words and language is a very pleasurable activity. And, I mean, I don't do it for the money. I'm doing it because I find it attractive, pleasurable, something that's fun to do. I mean, I'm not so richly rewarded for it that I would be doing it uh, for the, you know, cash rewards.
1: Well... I've taken up as much time as I possibly could of yours, and I'm really grateful for you, to, to you for talking with me. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: Well, um, it was fabulous to talk with you.
1: Wallace Shawn, everyone. You can hear him as the voice of Rex in Toy Story 4 out this month. And he is also one of the smartest people I've ever had the chance to talk to. If you don't believe me, go buy a copy of his book, Night Thoughts, which is absolutely fascinating. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where our substitute producer, Ragu has noticed that the formerly Green Lake has uh, become somewhat brownish. Um, his best guess, and, you know, he is a reporter, is that this has to do with science. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, He skipped on out of the office this week to take care of a new baby. Ragu Manavalan filled in for him. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our thanks to him for sharing it with us. There is a collection of music from Bullseye on Bandcamp that he has put up there as a pay-what-you-will. So you could go and you can pretend you're uh, hosting bullseye inside your car or whatever or at home if you have a karaoke microphone our theme song is huddle formation by the go team our thanks to the go team they're nice folks and to their label memphis industries and hey listen there are hundreds of episodes of bullseye that you can listen to Uh, I'm talking about nearly two decades of shows. You can find them all on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also grab them in your favorite podcast software. Uh, You can find us on YouTube, where many years of shows now reside. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts. Have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.